Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast. My name is Katie Coldiron, and I'm based at Florida International University in Miami, Florida. And I have the pleasure to be here today with Lisandro Perez, author of The House on G Street, A Cuban Family Saga, released this month from New York University Press. Lisandro Perez is professor of Latin American and Latinx studies at John Jay College, City University of New York. He received a PhD in sociology and Latin American studies from the University of Florida. His 2018 book, Sugar, Cigars, and Revolution, The Making of Cuban New York, won the Herbert H. Lehman Prize for Distinguished Scholarship in New York History, awarded by the New York Academy of History. Professor Perez received the 2023 Prize for Scholarly Excellence in Cuban Studies, awarded annually by the Cuban Section of the Latin American Studies Association to recognize lifetime achievement in the field. And I also have to add, he is a Miami legend, Um, having been at FIU for decades and founded the Cuban Research Institute at FIU in 1991. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Perez. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So just, I always like to start these podcasts with asking our author, you know, how did, how did this project come to be? Well, it's really a an outgrowth of the book that you mentioned that I published in 2018, uh, Sugar, Cigars, and Revolution, The Making of Cuban New York. That was a history of the uh, New York community, the Cuban community in New York in the 19th century. And uh, I based that on a lot of stories of the families who lived there. Uh, I didn't want to focus on their political activism as much as on the stories themselves of the families, where they lived, what did they do for a living, and so forth. So after that book, I, I said, you know, I have accumulated throughout my lifetime this entire um, trove of family anecdotes, family documents. I've, I've always been asking since I was very young histories and stories about my family. So I said, if, if I can write about these families uh, in New York uh, in the 19th century, I can certainly write about my family. But I, I didn't want to do it as a, as a memoir or just as family history. I wanted to make sure that I was using the story of my family. And by that, I mean my father's family and my mother's family um, to really illustrate in a sort of micro way uh, the way in which Cuban history has evolved, certainly since the beginning of the 19th century, because uh, my ancestors were really um, involved and reflected uh, that history uh, very intimately. Thank you for that. And so I'd like to ask you a little bit more about your research process. Um, how much of this was consultation and formal archives? How much of this was, you know, collections of your family? Was it done in Cuba, in the United States? Uh, you could tell us a little bit more more about that. Sure. So so the, the book is based on a multitude of sources. Um, at the core of it, are the stories that I inherited from my family. That is, the stories that that were passed down to me about my family, both on my mother's side and on my father's side. But 
but I engaged in quite a bit of research. And by the way, also added to that is sort of my memory, because at the end of the book, I come in with my memory of growing up in the 1950s, that period of time uh, when, in fact, you know, the, 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 the world that I knew was giving way to another one. Uh, and we had the Cuban revolution, right? So I, I add um, memory to that. I, I don't think this is a memoir in the sense that the memoir part is only at the end. And it's just one of the research tools. That is, my memory is just one of the sources, if you will. There's the family lore. But then I discovered that if I wanted to really contextualize uh, the uh, the the anecdotes that I had inherited from my family, I had to really research the context and not only that, verify those stories. One of the things that one finds out if you really research family stories is that there's a tendency to glorify ancestors. There's a tendency also that, you know, things are not quite accurate in terms of how they happen. So because uh, some of my ancestors were actually historical players, more prominently my great-grandfather on my mother's side, who fought in the Cuban War of Independence, later formed part of the administration of the uh, of the U.S. government in Cuba from 19, uh, 1899 to 1902, uh, and then later on in the new in the Cuban Republic, there were actually sources in which I could complement what I had what I had learned from my family. In some cases, and in complementing them, I corrected them. That is, uh, some of the memories, some of the some of the what I inherited as family lore, uh, were not quite you know accurate. So I corrected those, and I also found a way to supplement the anecdotes with details. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I use extensively in the book on New York by uh, Sugar Cigars and Revolution is particularly census information. So I was able to go, for example, to the censuses. If I was told that my uh, great-grandmother and my grandfather spent, uh, you know, six years in New York, uh, I was able to look that up. Where did they live? You know, where, wh- what building did they live? What address did they live in? I was told that my uh, grandfather and my grandmother met in a party in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Okay, what was that address? Who was it that lived there? I was able to locate that and and in that way sort of supplement the family story with the actual, essentially historical detail. I should also add that my great-grandfather, the one who fought in the Cuban War of Independence, did leave an archive which I also uh, bar, uh, used and which I subsequently donated to the University of Miami uh, Cuban Heritage Collection. Fascinating. And, you know, by the use of census records, I can definitely see, you know, the sociologist's um, intersection with the historian, which I, you know, would safely call you both at this point. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Well, if I could add to that, I think, uh, you know, I, when I entered into the topic of New York back uh, when, uh, when I was researching the book on, on the Cuban community in New York in the 19th century, my instincts as a sociologist was at first not to go to the archives. My instincts were to go to the census. In other words, I need to get a sense of this community, right? So it's very heavily based on the census, in fact. And uh, I, think, I think the historical censuses, and especially now that they can be digitally you know, searched, uh, are a tremendous source of information. Definitely. So getting into the um, nitty gritty of the book, um, I thought we could just start out with me asking you, what is G Street in Havana and what is this house on G Street? 
Thank you for asking that, because uh, I think that the title does bear some explanation. So the house on G Street uh, is located uh, on G and 15th, on the, on the essentially north uh, east corner of G Street. G Street is a wide, uh, it's in the Cuban neighborhood of El Vedado, which arose really as a suburb uh, at the beginning of the uh, 20th century, largely, even before then, but it really bloomed in the 1900 at the beginning of that decade of that century. And uh, in 1929, my grandfather, on my father's side, uh, who was an orphan boy from uh, central Cuba and had built a considerable, considerable wealth from exporting leaf tobacco to the United States, built this house. Uh, it's still there. Um, and, um, and in many ways, it's a place that anchors my memories in Cuba. I never actually lived there. It was my grandfather's house, but I was there every Sunday. And that's where I got together with my cousins, with all my aunts and uncles. My father had nine brothers and sisters that all grew up in that house. Uh, so in many ways, that house sort of anchored my memories uh, in Cuba. So when I decided to start writing this book, I literally wrote it. Um, starting, I started writing it literally in exactly the way that I have the beginning of the book, which is I sit once more, once again, in the bench across from the house on G Street. And that was literally true. I, I took a group of students to Cuba in 2015, and we were staying, the group and I were staying, about a block, it turns out, from the house on G Street. So about every evening, I would go to sort of get away a little bit from the students uh, after being with them all day and sit at the bench. And it occurred to me, you know, this is where I should start the book, which I had in mind all along. And I did take my Surface Pro the next evening and started writing the book right there on the bench across from the house. So that the, the beginning of the book, which is written in present tense, I sit once more on, you know, on the bench across from the house on G Street. That's literally true, right? I'm writing at that moment. Uh, so that's the house on G Street. It, it sort of favors my father's side of the family, though, because what the book does, it does alternate between ch chapters between my mother's family and my father's family, which are in many ways very different from, were very different from each other, but they were really emblematic uh, of the development of Cuba uh, during the period in which they lived. Thank you for that. And that sounds kind of, I mean, that sounds beautiful being able to like start in front of this, you know, your family's ancestral home in Cuba, writing this, this really great work. Um, that's also what I like about it is that it's accessible to a lot of people. I'm thinking about buying my own father a copy of the book actually, because I think he'd enjoy it. Um, so, um, Kind of um, going to um, the beginning of this story, um, I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about um, your family, both sides' role in Spanish colony uh, Cuba. So in terms of going back uh, to, uh, to my family's history, I wasn't interested in uh, the, uh, this wasn't an exercise in genealogy. So I wasn't interested in going back, how far back could I go in Spain or elsewhere to trace the origins of my family? I wasn't interested in that because I was interested in my family 
as emblematic of Cuban history. So my interest was when they arrived in Cuba, not what happened. Like, for example, I had a cousin who says, oh, you didn't include in there the, uh, you know, the ancestral connection with Scotland, which goes from part of my father, mother's family back to, you know, some Lord Sterling in Scotland who lived in, I don't know when, 1500s. Well, I wasn't interested in that. That that was not, you know, that, that, that was not in the Cuban context. So I started the book when I can, as far back as I can trace my ancestors in Cuba, right? And the oldest uh, of that, my, fa- my mother's family was really the the oldest uh, of the two, right, that I could trace back. And that's largely because they became a rather prominent family in Cuba. They married well into sort of upper classes of Cuba. And therefore, there's a genealogy of them. There's actually somebody who wrote a genealogy of them. It's included in a work that has a number of genealogies of Cuban families. So I had already a documented genealogy of that family when they arrived in Cuba. And they came, and my mother's family came from Catalonia, uh, a town called Torre de Embarra, which is south of Barcelona, uh, and a coastal town. And, uh, and from there, I followed the story uh, to Cuba. Uh, they were Catalanes, uh, tall, uh, fairly handsome, probably, uh, uh, particularly the men, not so much the women, and they married well uh, and into the upper sectors of Cuban society. And as a result of those marriages, uh, they really entered into this world of 1820s, 1830s, 1840s Cuba, in which some members of that extended family actually were uh, plantation owners and slave owners. Uh, my direct ancestors, as far as I can tell, were not. Um, uh, my uh, my great grandfather, who I write quite a bit about in the book, this was the the one who fought in the War of Independence. Uh, that uh, an- ancestor, he is descended from a. Uh, his father had been deported from Cuba for his uh, activities in favor of Cuban independence during the 10-year war. That means starting at about 1869. And he was deported. That is, That would be my great-great-grandfather. And I would assume that he was involved, uh, I assume that if he was involved in the War of Independence, he was no friend of slavery, even though his uh, brother-in-laws uh, actually were plantation owners. Uh, so I could provide a fairly rich story of that family on my mother's side. On my father's side, not so much. Uh, like I said, my, my, my f- grandfather was an orphan. I do know the names of their, um, of their parents and of his grandparents, but not much more, except they were immigrants from Spain, from the Canary Islands, uh, and they settled in central Cuba, which was at the time certainly in the late 19th century, middle to late 19th century, kind of a backwater of Cuba. And uh, he, was a, he, he was an orphan, uh, and he eventually, with a lot of hard work, developed a kind of a very profitable business exporting uh, tobacco leaves from central Cuba. He became exclusively the agent for the General Cigar Company, and he made a lot more money than my grandfather on my mother's side, even though my grandfather on my mother's side uh, had the family name. Uh, but that's a quest. That's a, that's again very typical, right, of a lot of Latin American mobility. There's uh, families that sort of occupy upper sectors of the society based upon their family name and their history, and others who make it there by sheer having made the money, right? 
So th those are two different stories and my mother's family and my father's family. It's really interesting. And uh, I wanted to, to ask you a bit because um, obviously the era that everybody most associates in Cuba with American influence is the 1950s, the, the Batista regime. Um, but obviously from reading this book, I know that your family's relationship with the United States, particularly New York, goes back a lot further than that. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about that. Well, the, 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 the reason that my family becomes, I think, emblematic of Cuban history is especially evident. Uh, that is especially evident if you look at what happens in the 20th century. So on my mother's side, that great-grandfather of mine who fought in the war had actually been educated years before in the imagine in the 1870s he was educated in a military school in the hudson valley uh it was called mount pleasant military academy and he was sent there his family had been deported but he'd come under the tutelage of his um of his aunt and they lived in new york so they sent him up to new york and they put him in this as a 10 year old uh put him in this military school in the hudson valley where he learned english uh then he went back to Cuba because he knew English, because he had a degree in bookkeeping. He formed part of the auditor's office of the interventionist government of the U.S., which was in Cuba from 1899 until 1902. So he had a job with the Americans, and he had a, he had a job with the Americans because he knew English, because he knew bookkeeping. And actually, I was able to research quite a bit about him in that period because all the archives of the occupation uh, of the U.S. and Cuba, and specifically the auditor's office, are in, of course, the National Archives. And so I found a lot of traces of him there and what he used to do at the auditor's office. He had a position of considerable responsibility. He then becomes the auditor of the Cuban Republic and eventually the Secretary of the Treasury. Um, and after that, he becomes involved in the management of a large sugar mill owned by Americans in eastern Cuba. So Starting with the 20th century, his life is wound up essentially with the Americans, uh, and and he as a re <clears throat> as a result of that, his son, uh, my grandfather, goes to school also to a military school in the Hudson Valley, where he learns English. Right, so again, this sort of influence of the U.S. continues intergenerationally. Um, and my grandfather on my mother's side, again, he went to, he, in, in his case, he went to New York Military Academy in the Hudson Valley uh, as well. And so he had also a great deal of background in the U.S. and he knew English. On my father's side, my grandfather, the one who made the money from uh, tobacco uh, exporting, uh, eventually <clears throat> sold his business, excuse me, to the General Cigar Company. And as a result of that link with General Cigar in New York, he sent all his sons to be educated in the U.S. in a private school in Long Island. So my father also, like members of my mother's family, was educated in New York. So by the time we reach the 1950s, there is this entire, I inherit this entire set of stories right, about New York and of the influence of New York in uh, the life of my family. And that's part of what I write about because, you know, in, in Miami, I was actually in, excuse me, in, in Havana, excuse the confusion, uh, in Havana, uh, I was sent to an, an American school to learn English. 
And that was always puzzling to me. But I think when I researched that history and I realized the deep connections that my family had with the United States and why I was sent to an American school. It's really interesting. And so I wanted to ask you, kind of building off that question a bit about the role of nationalism in your own family's history and subsequently that of Cuba, the Cuban nationalism that obviously comes to a um, comes to a height in um, the the struggle for independence, and then that which exists after you have this uh, growing influence of the United States in Cuba for the first half of the 20th century. One of the things that I use this story to illustrate, um, that I use this story to illustrate the story of my family, is precisely this dichotomy and, and the, this sort of, of, of struggle, if you will, in the ideology of the Cuban nation between Americanism, if you will, and some people call it Platism after the Platt Amendment, which of course was imposed on Cuba and its constitution and which kept it tied to the U.S., that the Americanism on one side and on the other side sort of nationalism. Uh, these two tendencies have been you know, have coexisted uh, certainly throughout the 20th century and even to this day. Uh, The Cuban Revolution of 1959 presumably represented a victory for nationalism because it immediately moved, uh, not immediately, but eventually moved uh, towards the confiscation of U.S. properties and to the notion of asserting uh, Cuban uh, control over the economy, which is something that had always been argued throughout the 20th century. In my own family, my own family lived that. Um, my uh, great-grandfather had fought for Cuban independence, and you would think he was probably a nationalist. But then he becomes involved with the U.S. government. He was someone who probably came, and I'm pretty sure that this is true, came to believe that the influence of the U.S. in Cuba was a good one, right? That that with the U.S. they would be able uh, to prosper more in the 20th century, and he was probably pro-American. <clears throat> that was also true of his son, my uh, my grandfather on my mother's side. My father, on the other hand, even though he was educated in the United States, I think I regarded him as a nationalist. When uh, the Cuban government, the current Cuban government, came into power in 1959, he favored the nationalization of U.S. companies, uh, and he favored a greater degree of sovereignty for Cuba and an assertion of nationalism uh, over and beyond uh, what had been true up to that time where the U.S. came to dominate so much of Cuban national life. In this, he was at odds with his own brother, who had also studied in the U.S. His brother was the president of the company that my father had started, that my grandfather had started of, of exporting tobacco. And he uh, favored a U.S. influence in Cuba. In fact, they led very American lives in Cuba. That's my uncle. Uh, and so there was a conflict there. And I remember my my father and his brother constantly arguing about this. And this was a this was a permanent sort of discussion in my family, vis-a-vis the U.S. influence versus exerting nationalism. I also got that in school, because my bilingual school. Uh, which, again, was an American school, in the morning I took classes in English, including U.S. history, which, of course, was very heavy on the 
on the subjects of imperialism and, you know, the Mexican-American War and the triumph of the United States in international conflicts and the Spanish-American War and so forth. And then in the afternoon, we had Cuban history with a very nationalist teacher, right, who, who taught us all these things about Cuban history and the assertion of a national ideology with people like Jose Martí and, and others who, you know, had fought for Cuban sovereignty. So that sort of debate that I saw in my family, I actually experienced it then as a child in school. And it, it's, it's a concept, it's kind of a theme in the book, I think, uh, to, uh, that something that continues to be explored. So kind of going off that, um, obviously, um, I wanted to ask you a bit about the role language plays um, in this history. Obviously, you know, I, I think it's important for the listeners to identify your great grandfather that was uh, the War of Independence hero and then later in the um, American military government and then the Estrada Palma administration, Colonel Ernesto Fonsi Sterling. Um, but and obviously, you know, as you say in the book, he was able to advance quite a bit because he had this formative experience in New York where he was able to learn English. But obviously there are, you know, your other relatives like your grandfather, Lisandro Perez, as you mentioned, did not learn English. So I'm just curious kind of the role that, um, you know, the um, if there was any sort of like conflict between English versus Spanish um, that you feel comes through in this history. When I when I introduce myself into the book, when I'm born, I make I make the uh, observation that I was born on February 23rd, which is actually the day right after Washington's birthday, and right before uh, Cubans declared their independence between February 22nd and February 24th. So I always thought I had I was born into this sort of binational existence uh, by being sort of at the margins of both uh, symbolically in terms of even my birth date. Um, I, I don't think any, I, I think deep down, all of my ancestors had a very firm identity as Cubans. That is, I, I, I don't think that because they were educated in the United States, um, they, they ever sort of wanted to be sort of Americans or identified even as being American in any way. Uh, I think they, they realized the importance of the U.S. and the growing importance that the U.S. was playing in Cuban history. And that was, I think, something that in some cases, in, in the case of particularly my, my mother's family, they favored. But again, my, my grandfather, who loved all things American, uh, you know, he actually went to super, he would go to supermarkets in, uh, in Havana and buy things that he remembered from the Hudson Valley, like, like canned beets, like what, what Cuban would buy that, you know, uh, wholesome bread, sliced bread, things like that, that he liked, uh, from the U S uh, in any case, but he always referred to the Americans in third person, right? Estos Americanos, right? And he was sometimes critical of, of, of U S culture. Uh, he could never figure out, for example, what was the appeal of Jerry Lewis, whom he found just totally, you know, totally, totally puerile in many ways, right? So he never, it wasn't a case of identifying in any way as American. I think it had to do with a kind of pragmatic uh, uh, view that knowing English and knowing U.S. society was really a great advantage in in Republican Cuba, right, in the, in the Cuba of the 20th century. And I think that my grandfather, my great-grandfather, both profited, profited, and I mean, not profited greatly economically, but I mean profited personally from having known that language. 
and from being able to be familiar with the U.S. My grandfather on my father's side, however, the the sugar, the uh, excuse me, the cigar uh, exporter, never learned it. He was, you know, grew up in central Cuba, never learned English, but he realized the importance of that for his sons. So he had five sons, four of them he sent to a private school in New York, and he sent them when they were 13 years old. And and I have an anecdote there where where when he drops them off in New York and leaves them essentially with strangers to you know, his two 13-year-old sons, his daughter who accompanied him on the trip, you know, was staying in the room next to him, and he, she actually heard him sobbing that night that he left those kids behind. That is, it was very hard. But even he realized, especially since he didn't know it, he didn't know English, uh, the importance of learning English, and he wanted his sons educated in an American school, literally in Long Island. really interesting and I think it really challenges kind of a stereotype where I think sometimes that we think that people you know the further you go back in time people travel less and obviously your family truly disproves that so kind of moving on I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, the role that, and you've already talked about this a little bit. Um, so the role that U.S. commercial interests play in this history that you're presenting to us. So one of the things that this story illustrates at the micro level, uh, by the micro level, I mean, uh, you know, at the family level, is how exactly how the U.S entry into Cuba economically uh, took place. And you see that both on my f- mother's family and my father's family. In the case of, of my mother's family, the um, Colonel Ernesto Fonts, who was the, the Colonel of the War of Independence, who later worked for the uh, U.S. government in Cuba, eventually got a job as the manager of one of the great uh, investments of a U.S. corporation in Cuba. And those investments, uh, in large measure, were made in eastern Cuba. Eastern Cuba was a place that where land was cheap, it was largely underdeveloped, and U.S. corporations, United Fruit and others, went in and invested very heavily in acquiring uh, land uh, in order to produce sugarcane. And they created these huge uh, sugar harvesting and processing uh, operations. Uh, and this company that he worked for was a Cuban-American sugar company. They owned uh, the largest, at one point, it was the largest uh, central, as they were called, sugar mill in Cuba, um, with literally hundreds of thousands of acres, which they bought very cheaply. And they created entire towns, right, around this this sugar mill of workers and so forth. And, 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 and it was not just, of course, a harvesting operation. It was also a processing operation because it was sugar. Uh, and, and you could see, right, that, that in many ways, my, my great-grandfather, who had fought in the war, uh, really had no capital of his own when the war was over. So one of his options is really to work for the U.S., uh, one of the ways in which the U.S. was able to penetrate Cuba so effectively is because it didn't have competition from native capital. Uh, Cuba was devastated after the war, and most of the Cubans, even those of upper classes, had no 
real capital of their own. They had no way to really start business. The Americans were the ones starting business. And so he's, he works for that American company uh, and worked for it really almost until his death, which came rather uh, prematurely uh, in 1918. Uh, but he was one who, again, if you, if you really were going to prosper economically, you had to find a way to work for an American company. Uh, which were the ones making the huge investments in Cuba. On my father's side, my grandfather, who had not fought in the War of Independence, he built his business uh, of uh, cigar leaf exporting, um, got to a point where his his business was being very profitable. The U.S. started entering that that area, that entire area of cigar, you know, of tobacco. Uh, purchasing for manufacture of cigars in the United States. And the biggest company to do that in, in, in about 1925 or so was the General Cigar Company. And the General Cigar made an offer to my grandfather and said, we'd like for you to buy all your facilities and we'd also like to buy you. In other words, you're the guy who's been running this. Uh, you know the tobacco growers. You know this business. We want to go into this business. And instead of trying to, to, to go at this on our own by sending some manager from Pennsylvania to manage this. We want your expertise. You're going to work for our company and you're, we're going to essentially buy you out. Uh, at that point, my, my grandfather had two choices, either not do that and then possibly face this large U.S. corporation as a competitor or sell to them and work for them. And he did that. Of course, he remained in total control of the operations of that company, which was an American company, you know, until his death. Uh, and it shows that although, although again, U.S. companies were taking over a great deal of Cuba's economy, a lot of that was run by Cubans, right, who had the expertise in sugar and tobacco and so forth, right? And so I think it illustrated that how the, the sort of the nuances of the economic penetration into Cuba of the United States. It's really interesting. And one thing I really do like that you have that I think kind of shows your, your background as a social scientist are these like almost ethnographic details of, for example, your um, great grandfather, Colonel Fonce's time managing this American sugar plantation in Eastern Cuba. And then your grandfather, Lisandro Perez's kind of involvement, like details from step one to the end, the tobacco being on the boat of, of that process. So I was wondering kind of if you could tell us a little bit about where those details came from. Were they more archival or, the, or were they more family memory? I'm glad you, you brought that up because <clears throat> as, a, as a social scientist, I consider the chapter, is a cha there's a chapter uh, entitled General Cigar, which is what happens when the Americans finally buy out my grandfather and he starts running a now a more expanded operation in which General Cigar, which is a New York company, uh, uh, expands its operations. Because one of the things that happens with, with the cigar, but not cigar, tobacco, excuse me, processing operation, again, what he did and what General Cigar did was export the tobacco leaf. They they didn't they weren't involved in cigar manufacturing. It was exporting the tobacco leaf. In the case of General Cigar, that entire product that entire production went to General Cigar and their production facilities in Pennsylvania. But but 
as a social scientist, the cha that chapter is the one that I like the most because, as you say, it is absolutely ethnographic. Uh, it shows, as a, as a historical record, how that operation took place. And the source of that, there were two basic sources of that. One was my father. I have been researching, I re now realize I've been searching, researching this book really all my life, from the moment I started getting family histories to the point also in which I start systematically gathering material. And back in 1999 or so, when my father was still alive, I asked my father, who'd been telling me stories about all this, I said, why don't you write this down for me? Why don't you write down, he worked with his father in the tobacco processing business, why don't you write down for me how that operation took place from the moment in which you were buying the crop from the tobacco farmer to the moment in which it was being shipped out to the U.S. That process of processing that leaf, that leaf, that tobacco leaf, would take normally seven years, right? And all the steps involved in that. <clears throat> so he wrote that out for me. And then in 2018, when I went to Kamahuani, which is the town where these operations were centered, uh, I also ran into a distant cousin of mine uh, who also worked, he was older than me, and he also had worked in this whole operation. And he also, I asked him to also provide all these details so that I was able to sort of verify uh, my father's account, which he did. I mean, the details were, this whole process was like a ritual. That is, my, my grandfather had instituted, this is the way we're going to process the tobacco leaf including fermentation, you know, the stemming, everything. And, and so I wrote that out because I felt that was, that was a, a, something that to some extent doesn't exist anymore because the tobacco processing operations have now been centralized and they work a little bit differently, I think, than they work now. We don't really know because a lot of Cuban tobacco operations are, uh, are, kind, of, are kind of not divulged, uh, but, but this is the way it used to be done. And it was not unlike processing an agricultural commodity for a, you know, world market uh, like uh, spirits or, uh, you know, wine or anything like that, where you have these all these steps that you have to go through to process an agricultural commodity into a, a world commodity that is sought after, particularly for luxury reasons, right? So kind of building off that once again, um, I really, as I think maybe it's because I'm from a rural area myself, but, and also I've spent time in Cuba in both the city and the rural context. I, I think a big theme in your book is obviously this dichotomy for your own relatives, but also in, in Cuban history between the city, the capital of Havana and the, the countryside, the campo. So I was hoping you could tell us um, a little bit about how you, you think about that. Well, my, my father's family, and specifically my grandfather, who owned that tobacco processing business, uh, he, uh, he always maintained what he felt were his essential rural values. That is, he, again, he'd grown up in a, in a backwater area of Cuba. He largely made his money by establishing 
relationships, long, you know, lifetime relationships with tobacco farmers, with people who worked with him. That is, this was a, a, a real, if to use a sociological term, Gemeinschaft type of operation, right? In other words, a real based on personal relations, right? Not contractual relationships. You know, when, when, when he would extend an offer to a tobacco farmer to buy his crop, it was a handshake. And, you know, it wasn't that that agreement was not actually consummated uh, until like five months after. But no one went back on it. Right. It was just a handshake. There were tobacco farmers that that he bought from uh, that had sold their Vegas or their crops to him their entire lives. And they didn't even discuss the price. Right. They they both. My grandfather was sure of the quality of the crop. And the farmer was sure that the price he was offering was fair. Those are all really these sort of rural kind of, you know, personal relationships. Uh, and especially those he built uh, with those who worked with him. He eventually moved to Havana in, in, in 1919. And he never gave that up because he felt that the success of his business had been precisely those strong interpersonal relations. So here he is in Havana. Uh, which is becoming now this, you know, this sort of glittering capital with all U.S. investments. And when he moved there, he was already 50 years old, so he was not about to move uh, to, to 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 move away from from that uh, style of life that he knew. And he tried to educate his children, uh, especially the boys. I think he had five girls and five boys, um, especially the boys in the notion of those values and not to be sort of dazzled by the by the uh, urban kinds of, you know, opportunities that were out there. So he always tried to have them spend a lot of time in, in central Cuba. He himself would spend two or three days of his week in central Cuba overseeing the operations. So there was this contrast, you know, between always, you know, city and country. My f- mother's family was always from Havana, but if they had migrated to Havana, they stayed in Havana. But there was always this sort of rural component. And, and my father even communicated to me, right, that Camajuaní and central Cuba was this sort of better place, right? Uh, and in fact, they sent me for about a month when I was 10 years old to spend that whole month with one of my uncles working at the tobacco business. And so very early, they started sort of, you know, uh, I was the oldest of all the uh, grandchildren, the oldest male of the grandchildren, I should say. And I was starting to get already an apprenticeship in the tobacco business. Might have been the business I would have been in and not this academic business had, uh, you know, we stayed in Cuba and the Cuban Revolution not taken place, possibly. That would have been an interesting, that would have been an interesting uh, parallel life, I think. Oh my gosh, definitely. That's funny you say that because I was kind of thinking about, which I'm sure a lot of people, you know, from Cuba think about the what if, um, if if the events of 1959 had never happened. So thank you for sharing that. So obviously uh, a big theme throughout, you know, your family's history, and then obviously that becomes a a really relevant theme, particularly after the triumph of the Cuban Revolution in 1959. Is the role of education 
you know, education in the United States versus in Cuba, a religious education, you know, the gender, like how education was determined depending on one's gender. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about that. Well, my, uh, my, my, my grandfather on my father's side, who had, as I mentioned before, five boys and five girls, I, I don't think they were very religious, uh, but they did put all of the girls in a religious school. Uh, I think that was also the acceptable thing to do in Havana at that time. Uh, and not only that, it was the elite school, so it was probably a sign that, you know, they they had now entered the kind of elite circles broadly defined in Havana. Um, but he did send his boys to be educated in the United States um, because I think he felt a secular education was better and certainly in a secular American education was better. If they were, had stayed in Cuba, they probably would have continued going to the same school that they, they had gone to um, uh, up until the sixth grade. Uh, which was uh, the La Salle Brothers School, again, a religious school. But I don't think my grandfather wanted that for them, for their uh, for their high school. So he sent them to the United States. I also think he didn't want to risk what had already happened with one of his daughters. One of his daughters, who he sent to the Sacred Heart School, became a nun in that same order. And that was like a big tragedy. I mean, the, the idea of, of having, you know, after you've worked hard all your life to give your children this sort of... Uh, prosperous life that one of your children would uh, choose the austerity of the nunnery, if you will, uh, as it was called, right, of the convent uh, instead. Of, and, and that was something that he didn't want to see repeated with, with his boys. So he sent him out to an American school. I think that was one of the factors of sending them out there. Uh, and, and so, and so this was, uh, the religious education was the most, um, uh, pr- predominant or prevalent uh, sort of form of education for uh, children of a certain social class in Havana. Curiously, by the time I become of school age, uh, there were a number of American schools already in Cuba. And by that, I mean schools that uh, were certified uh, in the United States. They had American teachers and they were there primarily for, you know, the children of Americans who were stationed in Cuba, either by their company or by the U.S. government. Uh, and also us, they were all, of course, it was open to everyone. So my, um, my father uh, and mother felt that it was the best option for me to go to one of those American schools to learn English. Uh, and again, we were exposed to that world in which we were sort of half Cuban, half American. We had about half of our classes were all American students who had these sort of and, and, and you know these sort of customs that seem strange to us because the Americans in in Havana lived in many ways in their own enclave in their own world and uh, and after school you know I had students that I had friends of uh, fellow students who would go to things like tap classes and you know all these all these institutions were available to Americans in Cuba in 1959-1960. And it was a reflection of just how deeply uh, U.S. life and U.S., uh, you know, uh, U.S. corporations, U.S. culture and everything had really penetrated in Cuba. 
I want to say, can I go back to what you were saying about uh, about parallel lives? Uh, uh, because I, I, that's one thing. I, I think immigrants overall, immigrants sometimes wonder about this. What if, for example, you hadn't migrated, especially if the migration decision was not yours? I mean, not that I'm saying that my decision of my parents to, to migrate to the United States in 1960, in October 1960, was wrong. But I was 11 years old, so it was not my decision. And then you wonder what what might have been the world, uh, your world, if you had not, right? Uh, if they had not migrated. So I have at least two parallel uh, lives that I daydream about. One is, had my parents decided not to leave Cuba, but the Cuban Revolution took place, and then the other one was, you know, what if the Cuban Revolution had not taken place, right? And and those are always sort of this parallel lives. I think I might have still been an academic um, because I like history. I like writing about it. But, uh, you know, I might have been a lawyer, which is what, what was a traditional. For those of us who didn't like science and medicine, you you know, you had just a one career choice of lawyer. If you like science and medicine, then you were a doctor. Uh, but uh, never got that far. So that's uh, those are parallel lives that... Uh, that I'm not sure, you know, uh, that that are difficult to visualize, but that I sometimes uh, think about. Thank you for sharing that. And yes, that's obviously a very relevant theme that, you know, I think a lot of of Cubans in the diaspora do think about, even if they migrated more recently and, and, you know, um, lived more of the revolution um, firsthand. So I really appreciate that you shared that. So I wanted to kind of, um, as we're, you know, kind of nearing towards the end here, obviously, you know, you do stop this book uh, with your family's departure from Cuba and your own departure from Cuba in 1960. So I wanted to kind of ask you a bit about the why you decided to do that and also uh, your own kind of moment of, you know, coming back to Cuba, you had mentioned that you were first able to return to Cuba in 1979 as an adult, but nonetheless are able to rediscover a lot of these places. And I know in your career, you've traveled back to Cuba extensively. So I was hoping you could elaborate a bit more on, on that. Uh, sure. So, so um, in 1960, my parents make uh, the decision to, to leave Cuba. I, and I have that as the end of the book. And the reason I have that as the end of the book, that is the moment that I leave, it's literally, the book ends literally when I board the plane that takes me to the U.S. Uh, and the reason for that is that I always saw this as a Cuban story. Uh, in other words, uh, the story of my memory, my family's anecdotes, my research, and all, all of that is geared towards, you know, having a Cuban story. Uh, once I leave Cuba, it is in many ways not a Cuban story. That may be another book. And there's a lot of Cuba books written by Cuban Americans about their experiences adjusting to life in the United States, right? There are a lot of memoirs of their early years in the United States and their issues of adjustment uh, here and what they encountered when they arrived in Miami or wherever. That's a different, that would be a, 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 a book with a different, with a different topic altogether, it would be with a, even a different purpose. Um, this this was a book I always saw it in Cuban history. So it ends when I leave Cuba. Uh, 
uh, I don't think that I have another book in me about my memoir of after I leave Cuba. And the reason for that is that, as I mentioned in the in the epilogue, I think that because I saw that as a lost world, that I had a very, I had a very rich childhood and it was sort of lost, that I willed myself to remember, right, all those details of my life in Cuba. So that my memories in Cuba are, I think, f- sharper than even some of my memories during the, the my first years in the United States. Uh, and so, so I think I was I was drawing on a much more a deeper sort of uh, uh, I was drawing on a much deeper well, if you will, of memories from that early period. Um, and so. And when I went back in 1979, I took the opportunity to go back as soon as I could. Up until 1979, it wasn't possible for Cubans to go back. But when I went back, yes, I reconnected with some of my family who stayed in Cuba, and some did stay in Cuba, but also the places, because these memories had been had been place-specific. And I went to the house on G Street. I went to, you know, where my grandfather had his op- I went to these various houses where my family had lived, all the scenarios, all the all the, the, the settings, if you will, of these memories. And I found them as such refreshed. The thing about Cuba, the irony about Cuba is that although it has been totally transformed socially, politically, everything, on the surface, there's there's so much that hasn't changed, right? And so it was not difficult going back 19 years after I left and, in fact, going to these places and even run into people, right, that that I had seen in these places. And that experience in 1979 was, was just uh, a tremendous experience for me. Maybe that's the subject of another book, but not this one. Uh, this, this, one ends, this is a Cuban story. It ends when I leave Cuba. Definitely. And I think that, I mean, for me, my, my gut reaction to reading this book is that it's a cross between two books, one of which I know you're definitely going to know. Um, one is the, a professor at Columbia University, Claudio Lomnitz, writing his family history in Nuestra America. Um, and then also our mutual colleague, Uwe de Aragon's book about her childhood in Cuba. So I think you're in very good company. So I like I like to um, conclude these interviews by asking the author, you know, what's next? What do you what do you have in store for us coming in the future? Well, I have right now. Uh, one of the things I say in the book is that one of the things I need to do is uh, is finally organize my grandfather's stamp collection. That is one of the things I have in the book is that one of the things that my grandfather leaves me as a stamp collection that I started organizing in Cuba, then had to, had to disorganize so we could leave, and then I brought it with me, and it's still largely the way he gave it to me. So I, I kind of feel like I have to somehow deal with this collection. I don't want to pass it on. I don't want to pass on the burden of this collection to my to my children. I have to somehow, you know, uh, organize it, sell it, whatever. Uh, you know, so I have to do that. But that's not an academic pursuit. I think that that. Uh, one of the things I, there are several paths before me. Uh, I have some things I want to follow up uh, with the New York book. That is the, uh, the 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 history of the families in New York. I, there are so many other things that I don't that I didn't write in that book that I have material for. The other one is, uh, and this is a more ambitious project uh, and one that will take me a little bit longer. And I guess I'm hesitant to get into it, especially at my age which is a, a Cuban-American history book. That is, um, I, 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 
I'm trying to be humble, but I don't think there's been anyone who's worked both the pre-revolutionary Cuban-American history and the post-revolutionary Cuban-American history. That is, the the academics who work on Cuban-Americans uh, are usually either the 19th century early republic period, uh, people like Jerry Pollo and Nancy Mirabal and 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 uh, and Jesse Hofsprung and, and 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 them, and then the people who work on Miami and uh, and the contemporary community. I don't think anyone's worked on both, and I've worked on both. Uh, and maybe it's time to put those together into a cohesive treatment of Cuban Americans that actually traces several themes, common themes, not readily apparent, but there between a the early presence of Cuban Americans in the United States and the contemporary presence. So that's that's a project that I'm looking at, possibly contemplating. Well, I, for one, am definitely looking forward to that Cuban-American history. Um, and, you know, I thank you for, for both being here, Dr. Perez, as well as the role you play in my own research, which you know very well. So... Yes, and thank you for sending me your dissertation. It's a great work. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, just I well, I'm not at that phase yet, unfortunately. It was just a class paper that I sent you. But um, you know, I will, you know, you'll definitely get a copy of, of that dissertation when it does come to be. And Well, I thought it was your dissertation. It's so so sort of <laughs> it's sort of complete, so you're almost there. So congratulations for that. Um Miami is Despite a lot of things, Miami is a very inspiring place to do anything related to Cuba. So they, we, this has been uh, Dr. Lisandro Perez talking about his new book, The House on G Street, A Cuban Family Saga, released this month from New York University Press. You can buy it directly from the press or wherever books are sold. If you are in South Florida, it will be available at Books and Books. And Dr. Perez will be there next weekend on Saturday at 7 to give a talk on that book, which will, I'm sure will be a very great event. So thank you again, Dr. Lisandro Perez. Thank you. Thank you for your interest.